Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise. With lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. Welcome into the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. My name's Jeff Finnep, and today I'm joined by... Mike Huberty from American Ghost Walks. That's right. We're back for season two. For the first episode, we're diving into the life of Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright, he's known today as the greatest American architect of all time. He's the GOAT, an honor bestowed by the American Institute of Architects in 1991. He's firmly cemented that through his works over his 70-year career. He's the only architect I can name besides, like, the dad from the Brady Bunch. That'd be Mike Brady. Okay, so Mike... He's got the same name as you, Mike, so you should be able to remember (laughs) that. Mike Brady and Frank Lloyd Wright, two great American architects. Well, his humble beginnings in rural Richland and Sauk County, Wisconsin, may have informed much of his style and aesthetic. The rolling prairies, bluffs, the Wisconsin Riverway, the American Indian effigy mounts, and the limestone outcroppings certainly inspired his worldview when it came to architecture's place within nature. Wright's career in architecture spanned 73 years, and he's credited with many incredible works, as well as the progenitor of a movement that reshaped how Americans live in their homes, the Prairie School Movement. Although Frank Lloyd Wright garnered fame, notoriety, and fortune, his life was riddled with numerous tragedies, scandals, heartbreak, misfortune, and financial ruin. Frank Lloyd Wright was born June 8, 1867, in Richland Center, Wisconsin. He was the son of Anna Lloyd Jones Wright and William Carey Wright. Although Wright was born in Richland Center near his mom's hometown, his father's wanderlust led them across the country at an early age. Wright's father, William Carey Wright, was an ambitious man who was trained and highly skilled in music. He practiced as a lawyer, ran as a politician, spent time as a school superintendent, was a musician, composer, and even fabled to be a country doctor. He was a multi-talented all, guy. All around 19th century Renaissance man. He was born a minister's son in 1825 in Westfield, Mass. He attended college to study law and music at only 14. He was precocious, to say the least. But he completed neither at that young age, and he left college in 1840 and moved in with his brother, who was also Reverend Thomas G. Wright, in New Hampshire. He later enrolled as a senior at Colgate, which was Madison University at the time. And he graduated there from, in uh, 1849 with a scholarship in music. He quickly married a lady by the name of Permelia Holcomb in 1851, where they moved to Hartford, Connecticut. Now, Wright's wanderlust led him to Lone Rock, Wisconsin, during a time of westward expansion. It seemed he couldn't make ends meet out east, so he decided to head Pick out west. Pick up and go to Lone Rock. That's right. Well, he hung a shingle as a lawyer in 1859. He's trained in music and law. His potential to the community was recognized immediately. He was a well-educated man with talents useful to any upstart community. And then within a year, he was appointed as the commissioner of the Richland County Circuit Court. From there, he campaigned for county school superintendent. He was narrowly defeated. The following election, he campaigned again, and he won that superintendent job. All right. Things seemed to be on track for uh, Mr. Wright, but just as he was gaining traction in that community, his wife and the mother of his three children died in 1864. Finally, getting his feet underneath him, he gets the superintendent job, 
and then his wife dies and leaves him a widower with three children. Now, there's a good chance he was familiar with Frank Lloyd Wright's mother, Anna Lloyd-Jones, at the time of Permelia's death. She was a member of the Lloyd-Joneses, a prominent family who settled only seven miles away in nearby Spring Green. Richland Center and Spring Green, not too far from each other. Mm-mm. Small community. Everybody probably knew each other. And seeing that he was the superintendent and she was a teacher, it's almost undoubtedly that they've had at least crossed paths at you know, meetings or, or Right, whatnot. and these are the days before, like, uh, that kind of stuff at work would be considered inappropriate. Yeah. You know, he, w- he, was, he was very much a, a married man, but after his wife died, it would only be natural to say, you know, yeah, I need to help. find got- somebody to help me raise these kids. Anna Lloyd- Lloyd-Jones was 17 years his junior. William C. Wright was 41. He was a widower. He had three children. And the Lloyd-Joneses, they, were, they had some misgivings about the pair because Lloyd-Jones was only 24 at the time quite a bit younger, different worldview. They probably wanted her to marry somebody a little more prominent. And not like just some old dude. Some <laughs> four, 41. Died. You know, I'm 40, so I understand. They, they had some misgivings, but the couple eventually wed August 17th of 1866. Anna Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh immigrant. She immigrated with her family at the age of two in 1844. The family trekked to Milwaukee, then to Azonia in 1845. After a few years there, they moved to Spring Green. And that's really where they settled roots. The Lloyd-Joneses, they were a tightly knit Unitarian clan. They had 11 children, four alone were born right here in Wisconsin. They quickly became one of the most prosperous families in the south central part of the state. That's no small feat with 11 children. Right. But they were closely knit. Anna was a teacher, one of few careers for a young single woman at the time. It was likely the journeys between her home and rural school informed her of her love of nature and knowledge, two of her early abiding passions, something she surely instilled in Frank Lloyd Wright as a child. Now, the senior Wright, he found Richland Center too confining, so you see the wanderlust kind of coming back, and too unprofitable. The family moved to McGregor, Iowa, when Wright was only two, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, two years later, Weymouth, Mass., three years later. This is all before Frank was even 10 years old. His father's inability to find income to match the perceived value was a stumbling block wherever he went. The lack of monetary recognition of his work led him to move to different communities in search of a suitable fit. It seemed the senior right was excellent in just about everything he did, except churning a profit, making a living for his family. This led to an unstable household with constant lack of resources, unrelieved poverty, and anxiety. That was right in his own words. Wright had what the architect would describe as a deeply disturbed and obviously unhappy childhood. For all William's faults, it said that Wright's father made an early impression on him in the form of art and music, two things that he was trained in formally and had a passion for. So Frank Lloyd Wright consistently maintained that a career in architecture was prenatally chosen for him by his mother, but his lifelong attraction to Bach and Beethoven definitely stimulated by his father. So you kind of see the two worlds kind of coming together. Sure. His father taught him to make structural comparisons between music and building. He introduced concepts from music like structure, form, and composition. Now, these were universal principles that could be applied to music, art, and even design. Wright had a love-hate relationship with his father. He loved him for his schooling in art and music, but he felt neglected by his aging father of six, who had little time for him. Anna received most of the accolades for Wright's inclinations towards art and design, while it seems like William's influence for young Wright carried the same theme, neglect. Hmm. So Anna got all the praise. He was a neglectful father, but at an early age, he found Wright's passion and kind of brought that out. While Frank was still in his crib, 
Anna tore out pictures from Harper's Weekly. Each illustration showed in detail a famous European cathedral. She hung them in his nursery, along with woodcuts of English cathedrals for inspiration. All right, well, Mom, it seems like he was a foregone conclusion. Yeah, Mom really instilled that in a young age, that he was bound to be this grand genius. And whether that is right, writing this after the fact, or it really happened, it actually did happen. Whatever the origin story was, it fit. Yeah, it worked. In 1876, during Philadelphia's Centennial Expositions, now that was 100 years since the signing of the Declaration of Independence, that the spark for the love of design, construction, and mathematics and architectures were kindled in a young right. Now, he was nine years old at the time when he's exposed to these games by Friedrich Frabel. They were known as Frabelian Games. The toys could be stacked, folded, arranged, manipulated endlessly into two or three dimensional constructions or compositions. I imagine these as like the small building blocks that kids use to to model landscapes. Well, these... I pictured like Lincoln Logs meet Jenga. Yeah, and it's probably like a proto Lego. Now kids have Legos at their their fingertips and they can just, you know, create the world around them. Right. However they want. These toys inspired kids to think about geometric forms, basic shapes, and could construct and express these blocks into furniture, buildings, entire city plans. And Anna, an educator, she purchased these gifts or toys as teaching aids for a job in the classroom. But Frank, he spent countless hours using them to refine his building methods using the wooden blocks and shapes. In their time out east, Anna, like many of us that have left Wisconsin, she grew homesick for her her native land. She urged William that it was time to move back home to raise her family. According to an 1878 newspaper, William was cited as a resident of Madison and a pastor at the Liberal Unitarian Church of Wyoming. Now, Wyoming is a small community just south of Spring Green, only miles from the current Taliesin site. Based on the historical record, we know that he made his way back. He lived in Madison and preached in Wyoming, which was probably quite the haul for a Sunday service. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're coming from Madison to there and you got to be in a horse and buggy or whatever, it's going to take you an hour to get there. Yeah, this was before the time of the Model T events, yes. At 11, when the young Wright worked on his Uncle James's farm in Spring Green, the senior Wright, who preached as a Baptist minister, found himself within the American Unitarian Church. Unfortunately, the new religion was no more financially rewarding than the Baptist Church. Well, he also opened a music store in Madison, and he went on the lecturing circuit with the church to try and make ends meet. He had three different positions, and he still couldn't make ends meet. The younger Wright was now of an age where he was gaining independence, He invented things, published a one-sheet neighborhood newspaper, attended parties, and performed after-dinner singing activities. Frank, he was popular among his peers, yet very shy around girls. He had little experience before his first wife, even like talking to girls. Well, that would change. Yeah, Yeah, definitely (laughs) made up for that in the coming years here. Now, he was prone to fantasy and would often retreat to his attic sanctum to read, draw, and paint and write. At the time he was living in Madison, in the Tenney Park area, they have him at Gorham and Livingston, which anybody familiar with the geography or the the layout of Madison that's right downtown. He attended Madison High School, where he was not an outstanding student. There's no record of him graduating at that high school. Those records would have been destroyed. He enrolled at UW in 1886. It was set as a special student, so it seems they may have made an exception for him. And I'm, I'm not really sure what to make of that, he, he got into the UW. Maybe he wowed him with a, you know, art or a presentation or something like that. Or maybe very, he did his it's, after It's very possible. Singing. You know, he was 
a precocious kid. He had many talents and he was he was well trained in the arts informally by his mothers. Maybe his preacher dad, Grayson Palms, or his mom, an educator, had an in. Well, by this time, Frank was coming into his own. His father and mother had divorced, and it was uncontested. It seems like Anna was happy being back in Wisconsin, and William was still plagued with that same wanderlust. William was a talented and ambitious man, but it seemed that the communities that welcomed him and valued him, but they were unable to reward him financially for the value he felt he brought to the community. After the divorce, Frank never saw his father again, despite him living until Frank was 37. So the next two decades of his life, Talk about a neglectful father. <laughs> you, well, and it you seems see like him less when you're alive than you know. But but it seems like um, Frank was at the age, at that time when he could have made that decision to just cut his father out of his life. So right. Kind of, the the neglect kind of went both ways. But despite the rocky relationship, Wright took away an ethos instilled into him by his father in regards to music. Wright later recalled Victor Hugo's comparison of Gothic cathedrals with musical forms, a comparison he may not have appreciated, but for his father. And you can see how, in the coming narrative, how profound Victor Hugo's writings were on Wright. And Victor Hugo is the guy that wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Correct. Yes, he was an author, and he had a philosophy that Wright took exception to that I'll get into a little bit later, and you can see how it kind of inspired him, almost a thorn in his side. And had it not been for his father in that training in music and the structure of music and comparing to buildings, he may not have appreciated that, and his life may have taken a different course. It's funny, you know, that we know all these... It really attests to the fact that Frank Lloyd Wright is so influential... The fact that so much has been written about him that we have all these details of his life that we can talk about philosophies he liked, he didn't like, you know, things of his youth and his past and like these little things that everybody's been paying attention to because they think his life is so valuable to study Mm -hmm. that the details are useful. Yeah, and, and he did live an interesting life. So I think kind of going back and doing some archaeology on his early childhood is useful and instructive, as you said, to kind of broader understand the man and see what society can gain from what he learned and how he was shaped. Despite Frank taking Anna's side in the divorce, it seemed that he was very much his father's son. Both men had similar personality traits. They were discontent with living arrangements and locale. Wright was never happy with his designs and often tore them down and rebuilt them again. So that was like his personal living spaces. He had the skill and resources to do such a thing. But those acts both made financial problems for him. And these impulsive spending streaks on remodels and later automobiles really cost him. Well, but, sure. And I, I tell you, if he, was, if he was trying to do that kind of stuff now, it would take him six months because you can't even get a contractor to come for an appointment until six months right. later. Yep. And that's just the nature of the world now. But Frank Lloyd Wright had the connections to do this stuff, but it also took hit on his finances. Both him and his father's view on children as an inconvenience and an intrusion on their work. It seemed like he was very much his father's son, despite kind of rebuking his father, feeling neglected. But, you know, it's the nature or nurture thing. Right. And definitely some of his dad's nature definitely bled through the story to come. Wright's time at the UW is short-lived. While studying there in 1885, Wright also worked as a clerk in his professor, Alan D. Conover's architectural firm. He did odd jobs on various projects, including a minor supervisor role on the university's most storied building, Science Hall. 
which Professor Conover was in part responsible for. There is a lot of lore around Science Hall, and if you've ever been on UW's campus, you see this big Romanesque-looking building. Yeah. I know you cover it on your tour. Yeah, on the UW Ghost Tour, we definitely talk about Science Hall. It's an imposing structure right at the base of Bascom Hill. Construction was completed in 1888. That goes along with Frank Lloyd Wright starting college at UW in 1886. There was an original Science Hall on that spot, but it burnt down in 1884. So that's why they wanted to build a new one made of masonry and metal uh, with no wood because they wanted to keep it as fireproof as possible. It is the oldest all-steel beam building still standing today, probably. Wow. So as far as the records go, it's the oldest of them. And it's most originally associated with pioneering geologist Charles Van Hise, who led the University of Wisconsin to having the first courses in sedimentation, oceanography, and engineering geology in the United States. Now, Van Hise has his own building now uh, named after him, and it's the second tallest building in Madison. It's the second tallest because in 1966, the city council of Madison passed a, quote, Capital View Preservation Ordinance, unquote, that no buildings in the city are allowed to be taller than the state capitol. That's right. It looks like it could be a fortress. Like you said, a Romanesque revival towers, blood red brick, and it's always the first place most students think of when they think of hauntings on the University of Wisconsin campus. And it's, that's for a good reason, mm-hmm. because uh, it's where they kept the dead people. So when the anatomy department moved there in 1905, the fourth floor was partitioned in tiny rooms, uh, painted what somebody called an odious orange with mm-hmm. no windows. In each of these odious orange rooms, two first-year medical students would be partnered with a cadaver. Their mission was to cut the corpses apart to learn the body's secrets. The fifth floor tower was also an anatomy laboratory, and with no elevator installed here until 1925, students had to walk up 10 long flights of stairs to the dissection room, where a judgmental professor and a dead body would wait for them at the end of their long workout. There used to be a fire escape in the south wing, and there was a tunnel slide with a 50-foot drop going into the courtyard from the third floor. And uh, children from the town of Madison would often come into the building on weekends to go down the slide themselves. And when the faculty would get annoyed by the kids, they would pour a bucket of water down them. Uh, But kids weren't the only ones who enjoyed it. Students would sneak up there and often do the same thing until it was eventually uh, replaced in 1982. Not so cute was that sometimes they would leave the cadavers there. Hearses could be seen pulling up to the rear of Science Hall, and dead bodies would be lowered to the basement morgue. From there, they had a rope and pulley system to take the corpses from the basement to the dissection rooms in the North Tower, and they called it the cadaver lift. In fact, in addition to using the lift, these cadavers got to use the outdoor fire escape as well. Sometimes in the winter, they would leave the dead bodies outdoors on the platform of the third floor fire escape so that the bodies would freeze and then not go bad. Mm. You hate to think of meat going bad, but that's <laughs> gross. What... The body parts of frozen corpses are much easier to saw, so that was one reason they left them out there. Part of the reason that Science Hall gets a grisly reputation is because when the anatomy department moved in 1956, they didn't take all the body parts with them. One professor talks about finding a jar with a pickled fetus under the sink in the office he was moving into. Another mentions finding the hip, foot, and leg bones of a tall man while looking for a storage space on the fourth floor. And uh, two graduate students found an embalmed human foot. Of course, all those bodies gave birth to legends over time. Just one grisly aside to you. My uh, (laughs) father-in-law was a longtime professor at the UW. Part of his training, he had a brain in formaldehyde in a five-gallon bucket that he kept in his office. And when he finally retired, he had to figure out how to properly dispose of his training aid. 
Oh, so I can yeah. see even like a, a less refined time, like the late 1800s. Right, um, at least I'm behind. Yeah, they're just like, we don't need these anymore. So I could see how the professor, he's done. He hangs up his, his boots, so to speak, and he just leaves it behind yeah, for the next the person to find. But brains. I think he did the responsible thing. I'll have to follow up to see whatever <laughs> happened uh, to that human brain that he had in his office for all the years. One of the legends there is that they discovered female body parts in the building. And since only male bodies were used for research, it meant that a woman was murdered. Well, that's true that cadavers were mostly men, but that's because it was before the days of people donating their bodies to science. So for research, they had to use whatever bodies turned up dead and unknown near Madison. And a vast majority of those were derelict men. So the- bums and people on State Street that froze to death, they just hauled them off to Science Hall and used right. them as, as training of, aids or cadavers. Right. Either they went to the pauper's grave or they went to the anatomy department. Wow. They did leave body parts around, though, and since students and professors were mostly interested in organs, they would often cut off the parts they weren't going to be studied, and they'd have the janitorial crew store them somewhere out of the way. Another legend of the building is that since the first building burned in 1884, a professor died there, and he haunts the new one. People talk of feeling a strange male presence on the fourth floor that sometimes makes beakers fall off shelves deliberately. Since only the geography department is still here, it'd be unusual for any beakers to be there in the first place. Uh, One of the haunted stories of the building is that a student committed suicide here, and sometimes you can see a body hanging in one of the windows. Or there's the story of the worker who died here during its construction, probably Frank Lloyd Wright's fault. Mm -hmm. And people have claimed to see a man in 19th century workman's clothes. But both these stories have no historical basis. It's true that a graduate student, who eventually became a professor here, refused to work in one of the rooms that contained a drain where cadaver cuts used to empty into. He didn't like the idea of working in a place where the ghosts might come back up the drain. But it's been investigated by paranormal groups over the years. In 2013, one investigation, a camera picked up a glowing light in one of the empty classrooms they couldn't explain. But the best evidence that night was a EVP. That's where you set your microphones up and, and listen later to see if they pick up anything that your ears didn't. And the strangest thing they got was a voice that whispered, I'm here. But who knows? Who was there? The facility manager for a long time was a guy named Thomas Tews. And he enjoys the history, and he often gets questions about the hauntings. But unfortunately, he's not willing to admit to seeing anything himself. Mm -hmm. Science Hall is an old, scary-looking building where humans used to be dissected, and body parts are found in strange places. And there are bats that live in the attic, so that's true. Bats in the belfry. But uh, you have to just forgive all the students who see it, and they let their imaginations uh, run a little bit wild. Yeah, and you talk about that fire exit, and I guess the the legend was, and I think you thoroughly debunked that as a fire escape and not as like a body shoot, because a lot of people said, oh yeah, they just threw the the bodies or or the body parts down there for disposal, but it sounds like there was... We, the bodies had, you know, that was for the that was for the kids. Was the fire escape? Yeah. The bodies had their own cadaver Which lift. Sounds like if the kid was unaccounted for or a vagrant himself, he could meet his end at Science Hall and then also be studied there for science. Yeah, it's a one-stop shop. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, thanks for giving us this background. And I know I said that Science Hall was the most storied building on campus, and a lot of people might take exception, saying. Well, it's either South or maybe it's Bascom, but with Mike just shared with us, I think it's definitely the contender. That's the place to go for ghost stories. Back to Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, he worked on Science Hall, but then he kind of wanted to turn to bigger and better pursuits. 
he wanted to take his firsthand experience on building something. So in 1886, he was given a firsthand chance at additional experience in the design and, and construction. So he worked with a prominent architect from Chicago, Joseph Lyman Silsby, where he designed All Souls Church for Rights uncle, Jenkins Lloyd-Jones. He was a prominent figure in the Unitarian world. Silsby followed up that work with a design for the Joneses' Unity Chapel in Helena. He got to see firsthand construction of Science Hall, now the All Souls, and then he got to follow that up in his own family's Unity Chapel in Helena. Now, the original sketch, which you can find online, maybe we'll put in the show notes, is signed F.L. Wright, D.E.L. Now, the D.E.L. was for delineator. A delineator is an illustrator that converts preliminary sketches into perspective representations. So if you've ever seen a pamphlet for a new neighborhood or a new development, you'll see kind of the artful, like the watercolors, and you see like, okay, this is what the campus is going to look like. Well, that was Frank Lloyd Wright's first official job was delineator. So that would be like delineator would be like the artistic sketch, and the next person would be like the draftsman, and then there's the architect. The young Wright was more than just a pencil jockey. It was said that at the time, a boy architect belonging to the family looked after the three-room interior of the chapel. So that was a young Frank Lloyd Wright's first real project. From there, Wright moved to Chicago the following years. In early 1887, he failed to find work at the five architecture firms he applied at, but he had an ace up his sleeve due to his work with Silsby. Once he had it in as a delineator, his path started to unfold for him. He was receiving recognition for additional designs, including several houses and chapels. So you see the path open up for him. And then in March 1887, the 19-year-old Frank Lloyd Wright, having newly moved to Chicago to become an architect, he received a letter from his aunt, Nell Lloyd-Jones, asking him to design a building for the school that she planned for her sister, Jenny Lloyd-Jones. He oversaw the design of the project, and it was his first major solo work. Wright would go on to describe that work as amateurish. Now, I think that really exemplifies the ethos of Wright. He was routinely dissatisfied. It would have been a major accomplishment for any 19-year-old of any era, but it also showed that he was not happy with the status quo and looked to stretch his and grow in his ability. Any 19-year-old that designs something that gets built, that's a huge... It's a massive achievement. Yeah, it's like, wow, he's a prodigy, but he looks back on it. Well, that was amateurish pursuit. <laughs> right, that was kid stuff. After spending about a year in Silsby's employ, he signed on with Adler & Sullivan, a notable Chicago architecture firm. It seemed his short tenure with Silsby really kindled Wright's affinity for residential design, so he carried that with him for the years to come. Now at Adler, he studied under the tutelage of the architect Lewis Sullivan, the father of the skyscraper, as well as engineer Dankmar Adler. While at Adler and Sullivan, Wright started to find his signature style, and it was expressed in the Charnley House. It was a thoroughly modern building with clean lines, broad flat surfaces, and contrasting reveals. Just looking at the house, you can surmise that it's a Frank Lloyd Wright. It has his style, and it was a little less refined, but you can kind of see the bones there of his philosophy and his design. In the after-hour sessions, Sullivan planted an important seed in the young draftsman. He espoused his philosophy underpinning his architecture. Sullivan said it was biological organisms, birds, trees, flowers. He said they weren't designed to be pretty. Sullivan explained, their forms evolved in response to their environment in whatever was necessary to best perform a specific function. Buildings, he told Wright, should be designed the same way. The greatness of Gothic architecture, for example, came from the fact that it was designed from nature's template. The principles gave rise to Sullivan's famous dictum, form follows function. But Wright said that that had been misunderstood. Form and function should be one, joined in a spiritual union. So he kind of took his master's ethos and said, well, here, 
you're right, but you're not quite there. It should be both. Right. He gives it the hippie treatment, or, or he gives it the holy trinity treatment, <laughs> yeah, right? That's it's right. Not just, that form doesn't just follow function. Form and function are aligned spiritually. Exactly. Although employed by Sullivan, like his father, Wright struggled to make ends meet. During 1890, Wright designed about 10 houses without his employer's knowledge. When Sullivan discovered the bootlegged ventures, he disapproved. The twos parted way in 1893. That was a real rift for him to say, well, Wright's going behind my back, producing these architectural plans. And I think Sullivan felt not necessarily betrayal, but maybe some like, hey man, why are you working on this stuff behind my back? I thought we had a, a deal, a relationship. The mentorship to the budding Wright, who was 11 years Sullivan's junior, is recognized. Wright's talents propelled him into almost an equal status as Sullivan in many respects in the few short years that he worked for Sullivan. The two were estranged until 1908, when Wright had time to reflect on the debt he owed to Sullivan for taking a chance on such raw talent. He was able to finally come around to the end and see, okay, I owe a lot of what I learned in the few short years, and you can see that the trajectory was really there after working for Adler and Sullivan. eighteen ninety three we have a twenty five year old Wright. He's a budding talent in the architectural scene. He's got twenty projects under his belt, and he's worked for a couple of well respected firms eighteen ninety three It was an exciting time in Chicago. It was the year of the world's Columbian Exposition better known as the Chicago World's Fair. It was also dubbed the fair that changed America. Now, there's a legend that Wright had worked on some of the buildings there. Sullivan was commissioned for the transportation building, but it's not clear if Wright had any part of that design. Likely, the drafts were already done by the time that Wright onboarded, and Wright, he was a greenhorn draftsman, so he may have been assigned to the firm's smaller project and not the Grand Columbian Exposition. And I feel like if he had a part in it, it would be well documented and written about. So I haven't been able to uncover anything. He'd have bragged about it too, probably. Yes. Sullivan was assigned to it. It's clear that Frank Lloyd Wright did attend. His later writings about the fair cast doubt about the part that he played in any project there. Wright wrote in criticism of the display of this old world architectural style, which had been a key feature of the fair. Wright wrote, by this overwhelming grandomania, I was confirmed in my fear that a native architecture would be set back at least 50 years. It seemed that a young Wright was intimating that a new world deserved a new architecture. In Frank Lloyd Wright, he'd go on to conceive such a style. Now, Wright was a modernist after all. He carried a disdain for classical architecture besides his beloved Gothic. Where the rebirth of this classical architecture through the French Beaux-Arts style was offensive to his sensibilities. This would be the prevailing architectural style through his early years and informed local works such as Madison's Second and Third Capital and many of the works of the White City at Chicago's World Fair. Post and Sons, they built a couple of the buildings at the fair, and they eventually won the contract for the latest iteration of the capital that we see today. Besides that, architecture firm, another thing borrowed from that World's Fair was the Statue of the Republic. Now, the sculptor Daniel Chester French paid homage to his original work when he sculpted the Wisconsin statue, better known as the... Forward! Better known as the Golden Lady or Lady Forward, which is perched atop the highest point in Madison. And we talked earlier about how the Capital Planning Commission pretty much instilled that. No, I mean, they made the law. They made a law. You cannot build higher than that capital. The Golden Lady, Daniel Chester French's work, which was spawned from the Republic statue, will always be at the highest point in Madison. And you can still see, like, they have a copy of the Republic statue in Jackson Park in Chicago. It's not the original, but they made a copy of it, and so you can still see one today. 
it looks very, very similar to his work on Lady Forward. Oh, absolutely. Although he had much disdain for this neoclassical architecture style, he drew inspiration from one display there. The Garden of the Phoenix, which is a remnant of the fair, is an authentic Japanese garden nestled on the wooded island in the center of Jackson Park's lagoon. The intricate garden stands on the former site of the Phoenix Pavilion, which was a recreation of the 11th century Buddhist temple from Japan. I've never been there. Have you visited Jackson Park? Indeed, I have. It's on our Devil in the White City tour that we do on uh, Chicago Hauntings. You can find that at AmericanGhostWalks.com. You can go there, too. The Phoenix Pavilion was where Frank Lloyd Wright first encountered Japanese architecture, an aesthetic that would come to influence his coming work through his career. So you see all the pieces coming together in his early time in Chicago. His early works really cemented his style. He got to experience the Japanese architecture and aesthetic, which he quickly fell in love with. It was just a matter of putting all those pieces together, along with his talents and skills that he acquired, along with experimenting with a lot of the aesthetics that he borrowed from Japanese, as well as his native prairie upbringing. After 1893, he either resigned or was fired from Sullivan for the moonlighting scandal. He worked on several suburban pieces, mostly homes for upper middle class businessmen. It was the Oak Park neighborhood of Chicago where he found several clients wanting a right. People had caught wind of him as this hot young architect, and they said, we want a Frank Lloyd Wright. They commissioned him. And then 1898, what, about five years later, he opened his Oak Park studio which was an extension of his home. He lived there with his wife and kids and then worked out of his studio. As far as his personal life went, he had married in 1889 while employed at Sullivan. He wed Catherine Kitty Tobin, and then a year later, his first child and namesake was born, Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. He was known professionally as Lloyd Wright. John Lloyd Wright was born two years later. His first daughter, Catherine, was born in 1894, followed by another son, David Samuel Wright, in 1895, followed by another daughter, Frances Wright, 1898, and finally... Robert Llewellyn in 1903. What I love is that Frank, like, you know, if you said that he was like his dad, you know, his dad thought that, you know, kids were great, but they were uh, an intrusion to his work. But that doesn't stop Frank Lloyd Wright from having a lot of kids in like 15 years. A lot of kids, yep. And then with, so within 13 years, Kitty gave birth to a litter herself. It totaled six kids. And I find it quite ironic that he, he kind of looked at as kids as a nuisance or a way to get away from his work, but he ended up working Oak Park Studio as an extension of his residence, which probably definitely caused some tension and friction, but I think that was more of a financial thing than any. Right. Well, you think working at home's tough now. Yeah. I would never imagine six kids running around. Yeah, with no tablets. <laughs> During his time in the Oak Park studio, Wright pioneered a unique vision for American architecture, the prairie style. Inspired by the broad, flat landscape of America's Midwest, the prairie style was the first uniquely American architectural style of what had been called the New American Century. The most defining characteristics of his new style is the emphasis of the horizontal rather than the vertical. Buildings spread out over the lots featuring flat or shallow hipped roofs, rows of windows, overhanging eaves, and fans of stone, wood, or brick across the surface. This fit Wright's philosophy of organic architecture, which promotes harmony between human habitation and the natural world. Buildings, furnishings, and surroundings become part of a unified, interrelated composition. Which is interesting because he studies under the guy Sullivan, Mm -hmm. that they call the father of the skyscraper. So while Sullivan father the skyscraper goes vertical frank lloyd wright goes the exact opposite yeah it's a really interesting juxtaposition between the two because you can see in some of sullivan's intricate detail work both on interior and exteriors wright kind of borrows that but like you said sullivan goes up wright goes out he really wants to fit things to the landscape and wright later wrote as a boy i had learned to know the ground plan of the region in every line and feature for me now it's elevation in the modeling of the hills 
the weaving and the fabric that clings to them. I still feel myself as part of it as the trees and the birds and the bees and the red barns. He really recognized man's fit within nature. So they weren't opposed to nature or above nature. They were part of nature. And that's how he built his structures into the landscape. Now he continued, no house should ever be on a hill or on anything. It should be of the hill belonging to it. Hill and house should live together, each happier for the other. The Oak Park studio years were incredibly prolific in Wright's career, with more than a third of his life's work produced at the site from 1898 to 1909. Major buildings of that prairie style include the Larkin Building in 1904, Unity Temple in 1908, and Wright's prairie style masterpiece, the Frederick C. Roby House, 1910. Those were all done in this time period out of the Oak Park studio. It was during this time in Oak Park when Wright was designing a house for Edwin C. Cheney. He became enamored with Cheney's wife, Mama Borthwick Cheney. Mama was a modern woman. Like Wright, she broke from tradition. She was an early feminist, and Wright viewed her as an intellectual equal. The two began a relationship that would become the talk of the town. It's a scandal in 2022 when two married people step out on their marriages to be together. In 1900, this was probably like a mortal sin. <laughs> right. like, there was probably no redemption for this. And Wright, being a father of six, including a newborn, he was judged very harshly and rightfully for his infidelity. Stay classy, Frank. And both in the media and the public were like, did he hear about Frank Lloyd Wright? Wright continued the affair despite the criticism. In 1909, Wright and Mama, they met up in Italy. They both left their children behind, except for Lloyd Wright, his oldest son, who was 17, who joined them later on their journey in Italy. Mama, she was granted a divorce by her husband, but Kitty refused. Now, after Wright returned to the States, he convinced his mother, Anna Lloyd-Jones, to buy a piece of property near their family property in Spring Green. Mommy, can you buy me this? I've been out gallivanting in, in Italy and Europe. With my mistress. I left my wife and six kids behind. But she did purchase the land for Wright, and Wright went to work drafting and building his dream home in the Wisconsin countryside. Now, when the media caught wind of the plans to build a new home for he and his mistress, they labeled it the Love Cottage or Love Nest. <laughs> Undeterred by scandal, Wright built the first iteration of the home, which he named Taliesin, and he and Mama put the sin in Taliesin. Hey. Taliesin is a Welsh name for a historical figure. Although he was a historical character, his life has since been highly mythologized in Celtic lore. He is a subject of many legends, in legends and medieval Welsh poetry, he is often referred to as Taliesin ben Baird, or Taliesin, Chief of the Bards, or Chief of Poets. He is mentioned as one of the five British poets of renown. In later story, he became a mythic hero, companion of Bran the Blessed, as well as a bard on King Arthur's court. Taliesin is known as the last Celtic shaman. Hmm. So he takes on a mythological interpretation, even though he was a historical character. Think kind of how George Washington is revered today. Bards were known as poets, musical entertainers, and even court jestered, which is ironic seeing that nearby Baraboo was home to Ringling Brothers, who were largely responsible for the birth of the modern American circus movement. Mm -hmm. There's much speculation of what called the Lloyd Joneses to this sleepy river valley in south central Wisconsin. It was upon this land they prospered. Frank's mother, Anna, was called home to raise her family here, and now it seemed as if Frank himself was subject to that same calling. What was it that inspired Frank to name his home Taliesin and his sisters nearby Connage Tanya Deary? 
which translates to under the oaks in Welsh. We know that the Celtic tradition is deep-rooted with the Lloyd-Jones's lineage, Welsh being a language and culture derived by these Indo-European Celts. Our first clue to an arcane knowledge may have been within these ancient Celtic names used at the Wright's new commune, or perhaps Wright's use of the Celtic or solar cross as an insignia on his draft. In Celtic mythology, there are three gods depicted in their male triad of gods, Tyrannus, Teutatus, and Isis. From time to time, these gods would call for their own flavor of human sacrifice. Tyrannus, he was associated with thunder, lightning, and fire. He preferred his sacrifices bundled or encaged in wicker before they were sacrificed by the flame. Now, I think that's some of the Wicker Man cults. That's what they do when they in, in the Wicker Man movie or whatever. Yeah, they're, they're based on this Tyrannus character from Celtic mythology. Now, Isis, he preferred his sacrifices dismembered, and Teutatus enjoyed his drought. On August 15, 1914, while Wright was working in Chicago, tragedy struck his humble hillside home. A male servant, Julian Carlton, set fire to the living quarters and wielded a hatchet to the workers and residents. In the end, seven were dead, including Wright's beloved mama, along with their two children. The perpetrator, Carlton, is often described as Afro-Caribbean of West Indian descent and is believed to have hailed from Barbados. But like much about this man, there's a lot of doubt behind his backstory. He was likely a black man from Alabama. Wright first encountered him in Chicago and hired him to work as a chef or servant at Taliesin in 1914. He was 31 years old at the time. He came with his wife, Gertrude. Supposedly, Carlton's behavior had grown increasingly paranoid throughout the year. Though initially he was described as a genial presence, it was only after he started staying up late at night with a butcher's knife that concern was raised. Wright started looking for another cook, and Carlton was given his notice on August 15th of 1914. While Wright was away in Chicago, Cheney remained at Taliesin with the kids and the staff, and sometime around noon on the 15th, Carlton murdered her and her children with a hatchet, then set the bodies on fire. The deceased were then transported to Wright's sister's cottage, Tanya Deary. Carlton was apprehended after a failed suicide attempt. He attempted to drink muriatic acid, but he died a week later of starvation in jail. The perp never gave a motive for his crime because he couldn't talk. Now, some say that Mama never left Tanya Deary. In Linda Godfrey, in her book Haunted Wisconsin, she reported that a woman in a flowing white dress appears near dusk, and the visitors sometimes catch a whiff of acrid smoke, a reminder of the unthinkable acts that were perpetrated traded at Taliesin. Well, there were uh, several theories as to why Julian Carlton might have done that. And at the time, this becomes like a, a huge thing in the papers because, I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright's already part of the social scene. He's already got Kanye West and <laughs> Kim Kardashian because he's stepping out on his family and the social pages are always writing about him. And, and you know, people thought that Carlton disapproved of Wright's lifestyle because he left his kids. It was one of the, you know, one of the theories. Also that maybe he got paranoid and he was afraid of being deported and having to go fight in the First World War. That it was if he, if he was from Barbados, whatever, they'd kick him out of the country and then he'd have to... Uh, he'd okay, so that would explain that Barbados backstory, saying right. oh, I'm not even U.S. born, so I right. shouldn't be eligible so that, for oh, the yeah, draft. He was, yeah. he was afraid they were going to send him out. Um, there was another theory that, because in, in Wright's autobiography, he said he had a, a series of disagreements with the quote-unquote union boys when he was working on the Midway Gardens in Chicago, mm. so that it was a Chicago mob hit oh. that they paid Julian Carlton uh, to do that, to set the place on fire. And there is a, uh, there's a former guide from Taliesin who did a, a blog post, a guy named Kieran Murphy. He thinks that the, the story that the, start of the you know, guy starts on fire, locks all the doors, 
And then as the people are racing out, Julian Carlton takes the hatchet and like, you know, as the newspaper said, cleft the woman's head in two. You know, that he says it's there's not really that much evidence that he did lock all the doors. He starts a fire and then just goes crazy and starts that it wasn't it was less calculated than what people were saying. This idea he locked all the doors, sets it on fire, the one open door as they're coming out, he butchers them. It's more about him kind of going nuts is his theory. The guy just cracked, starts the place on fire, and then just starts chasing people down. And because he's bigger than a Mm 10-year-old and a a woman and everything like that. And then he also – because he kills two kids. One one is one of the workers there. One of his kids gets killed. And the worker survives. He didn't want to – when people were interviewing him about it, he just didn't – his son died. Yeah. You know, didn't want to talk about it. The whole narrative of – what Carlton did is basically created by the press at the time. And so that's why some people think it was less of a calculated killing, and that's more created by the press to give some of these ideas. Carlton disapproved with very moral, or Carlton's afraid. It was a way to kind of cast a negative light on, on right and say, well, if it wasn't for you philandering in your little love cottage, none of this would have happened. So it was kind of right. a moralistic. Right. And they do that. And so a lot of what ends up being the story of Frank Lloyd Wright's greatest tragedy, his girlfriend, her two kids, and four more people are killed there, which sounds like it's a guy that just snaps, just snaps. He lost you know, loses his job. He's paranoid. Maybe he's, he hears the voices or whatever they just say. Now they give it some kind of narrative some kind of backstory, mm-hmm. kind of like Rob Zombie did the Michael Myers in the Halloween movies, you know, like yeah. he killed people because his mom was mean to him or whatever. And that's what this Kieran Murphy, uh, who used to work there in his blog, he kind of goes into and he says like, oh, you know, a lot of the details that we get there are from secondhand newspapers and things like that. The, the last surviving witnesses didn't really want to talk about it because they were so... Yeah, they were tra- traumatized. They didn't want to relive it, especially, you said the workman lost his child there. He right. probably just wants to put it behind him. And so, and then and Frank Lloyd Wright is devastated when he hears about it. And this is from John Lloyd Wright's book called My Father, Frank Lloyd Wright. Suddenly all was quiet in the room, a strange, unnatural silence. His breathing alone was audible, then a groan. I turned to him, startled. He clung to the table for support, his face Ashen. John was there when his father received the phone call. Mm-hmm. About what happened. So you know, this is obviously, you know, and then the media just feeds on it. Of course. They, like everything these days, which is probably amplified by 100. Right. Because now what was just a scandal turns into like an epic tragedy with a true crime element. Yeah. And then the true crime element is never solved because the guy can't speak because he drank muriatic acid yeah. trying to kill himself. Yeah, and I, I suppose Chicago being a major media market at the time, and then Madison papers probably had a field day with it as well. Absolutely. Like, how do you sell, you know, you, you sell papers talking about celebrities. Now we got something we can talk about. Think about the OJ trial. They talked about that for years. Yeah, they still do. Right. And that also dovetails into the more supernatural element was Carlton, he, who just kind of lost it and snapped. And they talk about him up all night with a butcher knife. Was he possessed by something? And that, you know, kind of asked the question, did Wright's insistence on building this house and naming it Taliesin set about a series of unfortunate events that appeased the bloodlust of these old gods we talked about? Did Carlton unwittingly take part in a Celtic sacrifice, as if he was possessed by a supernatural force? Was he possessed by Isis, who was known to prefer his victims dismembered? There are only a few known ancient depictions of this Celtic god, Isis. In each one, he is wielding a hatchet or a hand axe. What about the third god, Teutatus, who liked his victims drowned? 
did he not get his pound of flesh? Wright had dammed a small stream on the property to create a pond to resemble that Japanese water garden that he loved so much. It would have been a fitting tribute for Carlton to have drowned himself in that pond, but alas, he died of starvation about a week later. Ironically, while the murders were taking place, Wright was finishing up the Midway Gardens project in Chicago. Within that garden, they featured these ornately sculpted water sprites. It kind of ties in the water, earth, fire elements right, he's, to the story. He's adding a mystical element yeah. uh, to his work. And it's interesting, that although the fire consumed much of the living quarters, it spared his studio there. He rebuilt it, but in 1923, another fire consumed most of the cottage. This time, the culprit was said to be the faulty wiring. No mention of Tyrannus in that story, though. Right, he didn't come it back, just, for, the, it was just, come back it was, for seconds. It was just the wiring. No, no old gods. After the second fire, Wright would build again, this time his third iteration, and the one that you see today that you can visit in Spring Green. Well, you might be able to see the ghost... Yes, they say that Tanya Deering is haunted by the ghost of Mamma. After the tragedy at Taliesin and the death of Mamma, Wright's life really hit an inflection point. That makes me ask the question, did Wright engage in some type of ritual, or was he subjected to unconscious forces that both he and the surrounding terrain summoned, maybe unwittingly? Was it something the Unitarian Celtic sect of the family brought over with them from the old world and now manifesting in the new world? Kind of a invasion of these old gods. Right. The consequences of Mamma's death, they reverberated over the next two decades of his life. In the preceding years, Wright spent a lot of time in Japan, including designing and overseeing the Imperial Hotel Commission in Tokyo, and he was fond of the Japanese art and culture, and even wrote a monograph titled the Japanese print and interpretation. His time in the East informed much of his works going forward, but maybe it wasn't Japanese, but rather the Chinese belief that captured Wright. Did concepts like the Chinese Taoist feng shui influence his work? Anyone entering one of Wright's homes or buildings will immediately recognize the function of light and space and flow that goes along with his design. Was Wright attempting to direct energies? It was a bit of a stretch to attribute this to somebody with a materialist worldview, but was Wright truly a materialist? The Taoist principle of Feng Shui mirrored his personal philosophy of having your living design balanced with nature. And you see that as a theme through Wright's work, the early days of the Prairie School, where he, maybe unconsciously or consciously, was figuring out how to flow these quote-unquote energies through his works. What do we make of the modern claim that Wright was just a secular materialist? Now, it's hard to see him as a devotee of capital A atheism. He was born to a Baptist minister and raised amongst the Unitarians. It was likely he adopted some form of belief in a grand architecture and a higher power. Mike, can you speak at all about the Unitarians? The Unitarians, it's like a deconstruction of Christianity. They believe in the divinity of Jesus, but they don't necessarily believe that Jesus is actually God. Mm-hmm. That goes along a lot, though, with the philosophy that's going on in the late 1800s. Once you get Charles Darwin and the origin of species, people start doubting the official Christian story, and they start looking for different kinds of spirituality. The Origin of Species is printed in 1859. Not long after, you've got the spiritualist movement that gets kicked in, you just have these alternate spiritualities that start showing up that say like, okay, well, we've had faith for thousands of years, and now we want to look for something more scientific. It's, mm. just, it's also the industrialization. It's, it's, it's that era. The world is changing from an agrarian society 
to a industrial urban society. And Frank Lloyd Wright's, I mean, his, he's part of that movement. You know, we talked about Sullivan and the, his mentor is the, the man, the father of the skyscraper and these gigantic urban centers. Jobs start changing. Instead of being a farmer, now you work in a factory. Yeah, and some would say Wright's work was almost reactionary to that industrialist movement and then looking more towards the prairie, looking for a new family living on a new frontier and building these sprawling places rather than the vertical Sullivan skyscrapers. It said at one point, Wright's polymath Baptist preacher father, that later turned Unitarian, which, I mean, that's kind of in doubt. He just got a job as a Unitarian preacher. He knew that was an in with Lloyd-Joneses. Right, he wasn't necessarily the true believer. Yeah. But it said he, just, he stopped preaching, he studied Sanskrit, and then chanted the mantras and hymns of the Vedic texts to help him understand the divinity present in the cosmos and, and in the inner self. Together, transcendentalist texts, which promoted seeking inspiration from an inner light, were frequently read in Wright's household as a kid, or probably in his teenage years. Seeing Wright's philosophy and the expression of it in his organic work, it's apparent that transcendentalists like Emerson, Thoreau, maybe Walt Whitman may have had some impression on a young right, that naturalist, transcendentalist movement. Right, and that, and that transcendentalist and, and Emerson and Thoreau and the idea of the oversoul and everybody's connected, that's right into a kind of alternate spirituality than traditional religion. And that connection of, like you said, the human, the mm-hmm. scientific, and nature, the, the all-natural. And, and Frank Lloyd Wright, even later in his life, had said, as far as, you know, he's like, ah, religion, the only religion I ascribe to is nature. (laughs) And I don't know where that quote came from. I've seen it on cute little 12 by 12 postcards or whatever online. (laughs) Right. But I'm not sure where it's from, but I think that is kind of an attempt to paint him in this light of, oh, he was just, he was, he was naturalist, but he was very much materialist. Sure. And I think that, you know, his upbringing and some of his later stuff that we're going to get into really casts some of that in doubt. He was well-known member of the 14th Society, which was a loosely affiliated social club assembled to promote the ideas and works of the recently departed Charles Hoy Fort. Some of the highest profile members were level-head figures like Buckminster Fuller, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, H.L. Mencken, Frank Lloyd Wright, and the godfather of cryptozoology, Ivan T. Sanderson. The club was formed and a newsletter was produced and issued. The newsletter's format followed much of Fort's works where it displayed the damned data as Fort coined it, along with stories of inexplicable, strange, and enigmatic. Even if you get those today, the like the Book of the Damned mm-hmm. by Charles Fort, it's still great reading. A lot of the, the old newspaper accounts, whether it, embellished or not, are still kind of make you scratch your head, and it's, it's great entertainment. Right, like with Charles Fort, like he, like he just sat there in the New York Public Library, went through all these things and collected all these stories into one. He's like, here are these unexplainable phenomena. Instead of, and this is when we talk about the changing of the guard, the changing of the how people thought about the world in the late 19th century, in the Victorian times, he, instead of just saying, well, this is what God did, blah, 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 God, you know, rained frogs on this mm-hmm. town one time, he's saying, what could have caused that? Mm-hmm. Let's have some kind of scientific inquiry. And I think that was more Charles Ford's angle, was to look at, well, look at the data that you're leaving out, and how does this fit in? Can we dismiss this out of hand? That's why he called it damn data, because it was, well, we're, we're just going to set this over here. Scientific logic be damned. Right. It's like J. Allen Hynek said there were a few cases in Project Blue Book that he's like, he had no explanation for. Yeah, and he's exactly. Like, he just kind of put them there, and that's his it, own it, damn data. Yeah, and that's the most interesting thing to look at, and that's what we really aspire to look at. 
It seemed like Wright may also have been acquaintances of August Derleth. Now, he was the man responsible for propagating the works of H.P. Lovecraft after the author's death. He was also the progenitor of the Cthulhu mythos. It said that Derleth's residence named Place of Hawks it was reminiscent of many farmhouses built around its era and in the location of that Wisconsin River Valley. There's this kind of apocryphal tale of Frank coming to visit August and describing his house or the place of Hawks as a barn. I can't find any <laughs> anything that says that they were acquainted, but it seems like they traveled in the same circles, both residents of you know Sauk County or nearby Ridgeland County, depending on where exactly who was living at the time. It's likely that they probably ran into each other. Sure, and August Derleth obviously also was a professor at the University of Wisconsin, as well as the literary editor for the Capital Times newspaper. If they were having some kind of journalistic event or sent somebody to interview Frank Lloyd all these kind of things, there's no question they could have known each other or known of each other. Yeah, and both kind of in the arts and literary scene, it seems evident that Wright trafficked in these circles of writers, authors, artists, and literary critics that held otherworldly views. as early as 1898, Wright used a curious symbol as his logo or brand. It was a central cross and a circle inscribed within a square joined at the cardinal directions. It kind of looked like a Celtic cross or even a Templar's cross. This mark is related to the fundamental Gothic master diagram or circle of orientation. Whenever these Gothic architects set about building their structures, they did so with shadow casting, and that was the first act in creation for these ancient Gothic builders to orienting the building plan in respect to the sun's path. Kind of an archaeoastronomy element to the Gothic architecture. Of all of the classical architecture styles, Frank Lloyd Wright really gravitated to the Gothic style. So when you say shadow casting, that's the idea that they, they put something up so when they see the sun... They see like where the light's coming through and, and, and the shadow shows. Yeah, the path of the sun at the specific days and times, and maybe even through archaeoastronomy, that a lot of it was aligned with either the solstice or the equinoxes. Right, like they talk about Stonehenge and stuff like that. Yep. You know, if things line up between the stones exactly yep. right at the solstice. So that's how yeah. they determined those kind of things. Yeah. The logic of using the circle of orientation inscribed within a red square suggests that Wright's initial logo meant divine creation. Theosophy's founder, Helena Blavatsky, Madame Blavatsky, described the hidden meaning of the mystical diagram as the philosophical cross, the two lines running in opposite directions, the horizontal and the perpendicular, the height and the breadth. This forms the magical as well as the scientific quaternary, which it is inscribed within the perfect square. He encapsulated this kind of sacred solar cross within the square and that made four separate quadrants before we can continue can you tell us a little about uh, madame blavatsky well what we were just talking about there when you, when you talk about the union of science you think about the 19th century people start saying we have to look at things scientifically blah blah instead of through the lens of faith but then how do they reconcile that with the spirituality that they naturally feel madame blavatsky she basically madame blavatsky is the one that started a, a, a philosophy called theosophy which is the idea that you can join science 
and spirituality in a way that makes sense. And she really is the one that introduced a lot of these Eastern spirituality ideas from India. You were talking about Frank Lorette's father reading the Vedic texts in his house. And she is one of the people who started popularizing that. And, you know, she's like a really a spiritual guru. She born in 1831 to like a Russian noble family. And when you hear about her life, you know that it's only an aristocrat that can live this kind of life. This is from a, uh, a journal article in uh, Literature and Aesthetics from June 2011 by uh, a Ph.D. student, Johanna Pecci at the University of Sydney. And uh, she's writing, Blavatsky exercised her storytelling powers, masterly fashioning for herself a formidable aura of mystery and intrigue. There are famous accounts that in her early life, Blavatsky rode bareback in a circus, toured Serbia as a concert pianist, opened an ink factory in Odessa, traded as an importer of ostrich feathers in Paris, worked as an interior decorator to the Empress Eugenie, fought with Garibaldi's army in Italy, where she was wounded by saber blows and bullets, and was shipwrecked off the Greek coast. Her lovers may have included a German baron, a Polish prince, and the Hungarian opera singer Agardi Metrovich. Blavatsky claimed that she rescued Metrovich from assassins when she found him dying in an alley in either Cairo or Constantinople, depending on which story you prefer that she tells. It's difficult to know which stories she herself promulgated and which were invented by her followers, though she certainly made no attempt to dispel them. She apparently traveled for a decade from 1848 to destinations including Egypt, France, South America, Mexico, India, and Tibet. She claimed to have lived Tibet for more than seven years, seven years traditionally being considered the period of apprenticeship for esoteric initiation, where she studied with the quote-unquote Himalayan masters in their mountain homes and was chosen to reach the highest level of initiation. It was during her travels that Blavatsky is attributed with cultivating her skills in levitation, clairvoyance, out-of-body projection, telepathy, clairaudience, clairvoyance is seeing, you know, the future, clairaudience is hearing it, and materialization, producing physical objects from the ether. Now, part of theosophy also that Madame Blavatsky taught is that there were these secret masters through history, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, like these wise people. Like the Unitarians, though, not necessarily God, Mm -hmm. but still divine messengers. And the idea is that by going through and then learning and doing these rituals and things of theosophy, you would get in touch with these divine masters. She believed that it, was a, it wasn't some kind of mystical thing. It was science and mysticism were connected and that we could perfect that. In her book, The Secret Doctrine, in 1888, she writes, The exercise of magical power is the exercise of natural powers, but superior to the ordinary functions of nature. A miracle is not a violation of the laws of nature, except for ignorant people. Magic is but a science, profound knowledge of the occult forces in nature and of the laws governing the visible or the invisible world. Spiritualism in the hands of an adept becomes magic, for he has learned it in the art of blending together the laws of the universe without breaking any of them and thereby violating nature. So that's the idea. This is what she was taught, this hidden knowledge, the secret doctrine that she was... A lot of it is her just bringing back traditional Eastern... Eastern mysticism into a new world that hasn't been exposed to it, taking science and spirituality and kind of melding them together. Mixing it together. Like she, Madame Blavatsky, she is the, the person that brought us the new age. Frank Lloyd Wright has a connection to theosophy through his friend, the Baroness Hilaribe. She's an artist in New York City. She's a theosophist, a follower of Madame Blavatsky, who died in 1891. But, you know, her disciples continued this. There's still a theosophy organization today. And Ribe 
is the best friend of Solomon Guggenheim. Mm. Basically, he has her curate his art collection. Like, he's just buying art. He buys a lot of her art, and then he has her curate the collection. And he's really into her, and she's really into theosophy. And she's friends with Frank Lloyd Wright Mm -hmm. from, like, you know, the art scene and everything. She influences Frank to use seven in his work. Blavatsky herself writes about the number seven in a magazine called The Theosophist in 1880. The number seven was considered sacred not only by all the cultured nations of antiquity in the East, but was held in the greatest reverence even by the later nations of the West. The astronomical origin of this number is established beyond any doubt. Man, feeling himself time out of mind, dependent upon the heavenly powers, ever and everywhere made earth subject to heaven. The largest and brightest of the luminaries thus became in his sight the most important and highest of powers. Such were the planets, which the whole antiquity numbered as seven. Now, I mean, now we only have eight because of poor Pluto. Yeah. But back then, they can only see seven. In course of time, these were transformed into seven deities. The Egyptians had seven original gods. The Phoenician had seven Kabiris. The Persians had seven sacred horses of Mithra. The Pharisees, seven angels opposed by seven demons, etc. Madame Blavatsky is also the one introducing this sacred number of seven. And then the Baroness Hilaribe is, you know, reading about this, and she's telling Frank all about it. He gets involved in theosophy because other people in the art scene are into it, Mm -hmm. and they start influencing him. Getting back to that solar cross and Frank Lloyd Wright's initial logo, he had used that solar cross encompassed within a red square. Wright eventually settled on just a red square as his signature logo. Now, with today's eyes, a red square logo may seem appropriate for an architect, especially when considered in respect to architectural modernism. But to write red together with the square bore a specific and special significance. To him, it was the shape and color of creation. For his red, Wright chose his color as Navajo red. Although the hue changed slightly over the years, it was always that red. In 1950, he had a ceramicist bake up 25 tiles inscribed with his initials. In his later works, like the Guggenheim, these tiles with his initials were installed as a final stamp of approval. Well, also in the Guggenheim, he uses seven. It's a seven-tiered spiral structure, and it's the idea that it's a spiritual pathway. That's interesting using the spiral, also the number seven. The spiral is almost uh, in ascension. Yeah, so if we're saying that Frank Lloyd Wright is materialist, he's using an awful lot of occult symbolism in his work. Yeah. Uh, And not necessarily occult in the way that he's worshiping the devil or something. No, occult is in hidden or esoteric would be lesser known or only known by certain people, hidden knowledge. And he's putting it in there with some kind of symbolism. So it Mm. represents something. You said that the red represents creation. The seven is a holy kind of sacred number kind of Mm -hmm. thing, and and he's adding that. And within the spiral, it's really... Significant. According to physiologist Clement Tamarazov, the color red is invincible. It is the color not only of blood, it is the color of creation. It is the only life-giving color in nature, filling the sprouting plants with life and giving warmth to everything in creation. He clearly is in the know some spiritual knowledge or some other worldly knowledge. He's at least playing it out in a dramatic fashion. Whether or not it had power or not, it did to him. Well, this is interesting because we talk about, you know, like the conspiracy theorists today will be like, okay, there's all these symbolism in like Beyonce's songs or something like that of the Illuminati. And okay. But Frank Lloyd Wright is actually putting symbolism on purpose into the works, not necessarily for like kind of any negative kind of thing, but almost as part of a... A, like a good luck thing or a ritual thing yeah. or a way to infuse the building 
with more than just physical attributes, but with spiritual attributes as well. Yeah, and definitely in that design, we talked about the, the feng shui and how that kind of played into it. And now you hear about the spiraling, the many works with the Unitarian temples that kind of come into play here in the, the Shalom Synagogue as well. As Wright's career was budding at the turn of the 19th and 20th century, the world was changing. And with advent of electrified lighting, motorized transport, it's easy to see how this would affect the people's beliefs. The existence of electricity of itself or man's ability to harness it for their purposes instilled a deeper belief in the existence of alternative worlds by seeing this electrification seeing you tap into this this source of power and energy it made other people think that invisible forces or force fields verified the plausibility of the american spiritualist beliefs which were budding around this time sure the other invisible energies and forces they could conceivably dwell within a spirit or otherworldly realm. And, and speaking of spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky, when she moved to New York in the 1870s, she was doing seances, traditional spiritualist kind of things, mm-hmm. while she was, she'd have a seance, and then she would hold forth and talk about her theosophical the underpinnings and the philosophy behind it. It's right when, after the Civil War, spiritualism takes off in a huge way. because Which would make sense after such tragedy that affected so many lives right. and families the, the, with all, all the deaths. The two big spiritualist movements in the United States, one happens after the Civil War, Frank Lloyd Wright's a boy. Mm-hmm. One happens after World War One. It really takes off then. Wright even entertained this spiritualism in one of his architectural plans. The Susan Lawrence Dana House was one of Wright's earlier houses. It was the only project he designed that incorporated an existing structure. Normally, he was a ground-up kind of guy. Dana was a widow whose husband and father had died within months of each other in the year 1900. Dana was a spiritualist ostensibly in communication with her dead family through a medium. The function of the house included a gallery that would accommodate her art collection and the collection of its owners. At the heart of the house, Wright retained the existing two-story Victorian structure. Within the parlor, the spirit of her late father could dwell in the only non-remodeled room. The room was filled with furniture and memorabilia from the man's life. He built kind of a sanctum for the deceased within this new structure. It seems like most designers today, they're going to simply take an existing structure. They're going to haphazardly slap an addition on the back or the side. But Wright artfully and masterfully incorporated, he almost nestled the old structure within the new addition. It was a masterful blend of old and new to birth a new structure, an alchemical thing in itself. The inner sanctum, the center of the house, was still that two-story Victorian that was unremodeled for her late father, which is kind of a romantic notion yeah, in it's... itself. Like, that's dad's den. Right. That doesn't. That's not a very, you know, we, we talk about t- materialism, this idea that, you know, humans are just meat or whatever, like yeah. we were talking about the, the corpses in Science Hall, that it's just meat, that the spirit doesn't matter, that everything's just a chemical in the brain and, and all these kind of things. Frank Lloyd Wright's often considered a materialist because this is kind of when the movement takes off. Then he de- Wright, he's designing a place where where the father's spirit can reside. That doesn't sound like a, a real materialist hardcore. Yeah, and this was one of his earlier works, so maybe he wouldn't be able to say, I can't take on this project because you're a kooky bat and we're not going to undertake this nonsense but he did and he built one uh, the house still stands today and it's uh, quite the architectural accomplishment 
of how he seamlessly built the old structure into the new. Wright himself, he may not have been a member of the Theosophical Society, but he lived and worked with an esoteric milieu that helped to reshape his Theosophic-inspired architectural theory, which in turn guided his design process to produce significant projects that for their time could be described as designs that had never been seen before. Coming up next time on the Wisconsin Legends Podcast, the conclusion of the Frank Lloyd Wright saga. How does Wright move on after his loss of Mama and his home in Taliesin? Wright finds himself in Tokyo, but as soon as things start to get better, they all fall apart. What legal troubles lead to Wright's incarceration in Minnesota, and a mysterious character emerges from the East? Will his presence bring about fortune or ill luck for Wright? Which places are said to be inhabited by Frank Lloyd Wright's ghost, and which of Frank Lloyd Wright's properties are said to be cursed? Find out in the conclusion of the Wisconsin Legends podcast series on the life of Frank Lloyd Wright. The Wisconsin Legends podcast is presented by American Ghost Ones, hosted by Mike Huberty and Jeff Finnam, recorded at Sunspot Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, edited by Jeff Finnam, audio engineer Mike Huberty, Music by Sunspot and various artists. Find out more about the show, including show notes, at wisconsinlegendspodcast.com. Follow the guys at American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends on Instagram and Facebook. We'll see you next time.